Welcome to Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. If you have a sticky situation, send it to us, inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn, here with wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Marna. Hey, I'm super excited about today's show. Me too. Good to have you here. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning. I'm excited too. (laughs) But wait, that's not all. Today we also have Kathy Derrick, who is herself a retired Army officer, combat vet, mother of four, and oh, by the way, she's also married to Mike Derrick. Hi, Kathy. Welcome. Good morning, Martin. Thanks, Morna. It's great to be here as a guest today. Looking forward to it. Well, you get mentioned so often in our podcast that you already have like a minor speaking part. So, yeah, I may have to do some corrective, uh, you know, comments <laughs> after some of the things my husband said on this podcast. Oh, well, it's hey, good to have hey, you. Hey, wait, 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 wait. All good. It's all good. Today we pivot from our usual format of scenario-driven conversation because we want to hear about Mike and Kathy's excellent adventure. You may remember that Mike was gone during August, so Kelly and I had to carry on without him for one episode. It was tough, but we managed. Mike was busy hiking with Kathy in the Sierra Nevada mountains. They walked 210 miles, over 19 walking days, carrying everything they needed on their backs and camping in a small tent every night. So for those of us who don't hike, unless there's a Sherpa involved, a shower, and a hot meal prepared at the end of the day, Mike and Kathy are going to fill us in on the logistics of this epic adventure. Then we're going to hear about their interactions with other people on the trail and how they differed from the dynamics in their daily life back home in upstate New York. So tell us, Mike, how did you and Kathy get the idea to go out on this adventure? You know, Marna, this, like many things we've talked about on this podcast, is driven by COVID. So it was last summer, uh, there wasn't a lot to do because the pandemic was uh, in full force up here in northern New York. And so we decided to go into the forest. And um, we live in the Adirondack Park, and we walked a trail last summer, which is called the Northville Placid Trail. Um, it's 135 miles. We didn't know if we'd make it, but it took us 12 days, and it was this great success. We, were, we surprised ourselves, you know, for two folks in late middle age, and we had a blast. And so this summer, we decided to step up and take it up to the next level. And so we applied for a permit, the state of California, for the John Muir Trail. The John Muir Trail is one of these iconic trails in America. It's not one of the longest trails, but it is the most remote trail in that for 230 miles, the John Muir Trail does not cross a road. So you're really out there. Wow. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. I mean, this is California after all, but it is this incredible slice of wilderness through those mountains. And we knew it would be hard. We just didn't quite know it would be that hard. And um, (laughs) it was really something for both of us. And that's why we feel so strongly about talking about it today. So let me turn it over to Kath, and she's going to kind of give us some of the details on our trip. There were a few highlights I really want to share about this adventure. Marla, you mentioned one, but it's worth repeating. It took 19 days of walking, uh, and we went 210 miles. That's an average of about 11 miles a day. The biggest highlight for us is probably that our daughter and son-in-law joined us at the beginning. They're uh, Marines, part of the Marine Corps and stationed in 
Southern California, and they they took leave and, and walked 40 miles with us before they had to get back to work. But it was pretty special for us. On walking, our shortest day was about four miles. That was our rest day, and it was nice just to, to chill out then later on in the day and not climb a mountain that day. The longest days was 14 miles, and we thought up front that that would be really manageable, but we found after two or three or four of those days, that was our limit, and we were exhausted when we came in after 14 miles. So that kind of gave us a our sweet spot down at about an average of about 11 or 12 was, was more normal, was a happy, happy miles. Kathy, how long does it take to walk 14 miles? How many hours? Generally, if it was a 14-mile day, that was a, a pass included up and over something very tall at like 10, 12,000 feet. So generally we started walking at, oh, 7.30, between 7 and 8 in the morning, and we would try to roll into camp by 4. And we took short stops. We didn't stop for an hour or two for lunch or anything. So uh, that's like 6 to 8 hours walking. Does that sound about right, Mike? Yeah. Some days were longer. I mean, there were some really hard, long days, but that's about right. How did you guys prepare for this? How did, did you train? You know, what did you do to get ready? We did train, I guess. We started last summer, and then when we knew this winter, when we got the permit for this, we climbed a lot in the Adirondacks. Instead of just going out on hikes where it was pretty low or rolling hills, we did a lot of climbing the, the peaks in the Adirondacks. Now, we had a smaller pack on when we did that, but it really trained and toughened our legs up for the descents. Because as you both will know, and we may know that, you know, just the descents are harder than the ascents. It's hard on middle-aged knees. <laughs> and we really had to toughen ours up with weight on our back. So that was a big part of our training. After you walked uh, so many miles in one day, the next day I imagine your legs were tired and sore. Yes. Yeah. Hey, let me jump in yeah. here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a great term out there. It's called the hiker's hobble. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just imagine. So when you wake up in the morning and, you know, of course, you're sleeping in a very small tent on a very thin air mattress. And sometimes it's really, really cold. Kathy will talk about that later. But you get up in the morning and you just sort of stagger around for a while until you get warmed up. And so you go very slowly and carefully, especially at our age when things, they don't bounce back quite as they used to. Remember the hiker's hobble. A couple other points, uh, highlights. uh, The finish of the trip was at Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the lower 48, as we always said when we lived in Alaska. So Mount Whitney's at 14,500 feet. And it was it was uh, something to behold, to be on the top of that mountain in the morning and having 100-mile views. And plus with the fires and stuff, they had limited access. So there were only like eight of us on the mountain that morning, which was pretty cool. We had it all to ourselves. Did you guys take some pictures while you were up there? Oh, yes. Maybe we could post a few. We will post some on our Instagram. Great. I'd love yeah. to see them. They're amazing. And, and a question I, I often get is like, well, how heavy was your pack? And our pack weight was approximately 35 pounds. Our goal was 30 pounds. But um, just the amount of food and the few extra things we needed for the cold nights bumped it up a little. And so after the second resupply, the heavy, we weighed them. They had a weight uh, scale there, which was amazing. And they were 37 pounds. That was the heaviest they were on the trail. And, and that was a lot. And we were at day 10 at that point. We were pretty strong, but... And we moved really slow that next hike out with that 37-pound pack. That was because we carried 10 days of food, that, that sec- last segment. And uh, 
Speaking of food, I'm going to hand this off to Mike and let him talk about that. So when you're backpacking, everybody's got a job, and I'm the cook. So people ask, well, what do you eat? Every single meal begins with a pot of boiling water. We have this tiny little camp stove. You boil water, and then you throw things in the water. You put the lid back on, and you wait 20 minutes for it to rehydrate. So, for example, our favorite dinner meal was soba noodles with chicken and vegetables. We made our own food. We had a couple of the prepackaged backpacking meals, but only a handful. The rest we kind of cooked ourselves. And then breakfast was always oatmeal with fruits and nuts. So we ate two hot meals a day, and then we just snacked through the middle. As Kath said, we had two food resupplies. Uh, We picked up food on day five, which we'd mailed to ourselves, and we picked up food again on day 10 because you can't you could but it's it's unreasonable to carry in our case 19 days of food so we carried we broke it up into three parts and that worked pretty well although the last piece just because it's so remote was 10 days and so that was really heavy but the good news is that every day you walk your pack gets lighter because you (laughs) keep eating food so so you said you got resupply where do you pick up the resupply yeah, I'm wondering about that too. Yeah. Like how does that work? It's kind of a funny thing. You Typically, you mail it to yourself at a post office. You go to the post office and you pick up your box and it's like Christmas, you know. All these things you thought you were going to need three or four weeks earlier, they're there waiting for you. And sometimes you go into a town and you can find something to buy. But you figure out what you like to eat and, and so you're pretty specific about your meals. So in, our, in this case, we mailed ourselves two boxes of food. That made it work. I'm wondering, there's post offices like on the trail? Because I know you said there, you didn't cross any roads or... right. So you have to walk off the trail. So the trail doesn't cross a road. So you have to often go like through a pass to get up and off the trail into town. So our first town was dropping our daughter and son-in-law off. So that was day five. And then our second food drop was at a an outfitter's ranch. They outfitted with horses and mules. And we had to walk off the trail to go to them. But just be clear, there are that one and there's another that are outposts that are on the trail or close. We had to get off the trail a little bit, like half a mile or a mile. But, but those are considered on the trail. And they have mule access and resupply and all, all that stuff for these outposts. But on and the whole John Muir Trail, the, there are two that you can mail things to. And then you'd hike to that outpost, so not quite as far as trying to get out to overpass to a town. So they allow mules on that trail? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and llamas? Any llamas? We yeah. saw llamas. Yes, we did. Did you? <laughs> yes. Because you can't, on the Appalachian Trail, you can't have animals. It, no, I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. It may know. be llamas because there are some people that do some, that's their Sherpa. They have their little llamas that they hike with that carry their gear. But that, that really is an indicator of how great this trail is. It was made for stock animals the the mule trains still go um and that is when it was when it was built it was built for that purpose to get stock animals through so you can imagine that these really high passes they created switchbacks which are much more pleasant than going straight up the fall line of a mountain to allow the animals uh, a reasonable way if you've ever been to the grand canyon you'll see those too the switchbacks that go down in because they have mules and the stock animals that go down into the bottom of the ca- the canyon there yeah so let Interesting. me let me pick up uh we talked a little 
little bit about food. So there's food, and of course there's water. We drank a lot of water. The Sierras are really high, and they're, it's a very dry environment. And so we were drinking at least two gallons of water a day, sometimes more when it got hot. There were two occasions when we drank directly from the stream. So we just took our little cups and dipped into the stream. But we only did that when we could see the source of the water. So twice we were walking, and there was a snowfield above us, and a little stream running out of the bottom of the snowfield, and we knew that that water was super pure, and so we drank unpurified water. But the rest of the time, we filtered our water just to make sure it was safe to drink. We talked about food, we talked about water, but, you know, the bottom line is that you're working so hard out there, you can't keep up with your caloric demand. So in 19 days, between the two of us, we ended up losing 24 pounds, Wow, 12 pounds each, roughly. Yeah, we're not going to get into specifics. I'm I'm not surprised. That's that's very, very personal. Uh, This is not that kind of podcast. Um, But uh, yeah, between us, 24 pounds. Well, you told me about your meals, and it just doesn't seem like very many calories in those meals. Oatmeal and soba noodles. Yeah. You know, but you're never you're never starving because you get a good solid breakfast, a hot breakfast. At least this is everybody's got their own approach, but that's what we do. Hot breakfast, and then all day long you're eating dried fruit, nuts, energy bars, M&Ms, you know, whatever you feel like. Um, like one of my favorite snacks on the trail is Fritos. I eat lots of Fritos because Fritos are super high caloric and they're yeah. very light. And they're so good. And yeah, they're just they're wonderful. So healthy. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly. Thank Yummy. you. Yes. Remember the t- remember the weight loss, Kelly. Just just remember that. Yeah. Um, no, no judging. Who knew? Uh, no judging. Who knew? Fritos. Who knew? I have a Frito problem, which it, if maybe that's why I backpack. I'm not sure. So when I it comes to problems, that's not so bad. Well, if his is Fritos, mine are peanut M&Ms, which are oh, not allowed in my house because that would be bad. Oh, those are so <laughs> It'd be good. 12 pounds the other way. So, but on the trail, out come the peanut M&Ms. So how did you guys get into backpacking? Good question. We've been, I did it as a kid and I really came, you know, I grew up in this part of New York. And so I had teachers and I went with my family and we would backpack and canoe. So I knew about it as a kid. And then I was, after all, in the infantry for many years. It's a different kind of backpacking. That's sort of backpacking with heavy weapons. Backpacking with heavy weapons. (laughs) Yeah, right. You've never heard that, Marna? No, (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it is. Backpacking with heavy weapons and lots of ammunition. Um, And and heavy equipment, too, by the way. (laughs) It's, it's, It's okay for young people. And, you know, when I was in the infantry... I had absolutely no interest in backpacking. But now, I tell you, it is just something we've come to love. And I'd like to hear what Kath has to say, why she she likes it. Yeah, well, I guess I was exposed to it in the Army. So it's easy to, it'd be easy to not like it, given that start. And then with kids, it's hard because you got to carry all your stuff. And so we did car camping with our kids, which I loved camping. I love going out into the, the woods. But, you know, with four kids, you know, you had to drag a lot of, slip a lot of gear. So we would, you know, bring the car up and put up the big tent. And But yeah, we just, we did a, we did a trip about, I don't know, nine years ago. And that was my first real foray into backpacking. And the kids were teenagers, so they carried their own stuff. And that was great, but that was nine years ago. So it really took COVID 
and a lot of time together and not socializing that we decided where we live is pretty remarkable and hey let's go try this and and just get out in the woods and see how it goes and that was that the 12-day walk we did last year expecting maybe just to do three or four days see how it felt and it felt good so it was a little accidental we've been hiking for years and years and years but the overnight carry all your gear stuff is other than nine years ago the one time we hadn't I had not done much of it other than my army trained with heavy weapons version. Now, if you were going to recommend to somebody that wants to get started, how would they go about that? Like they want to they want to get out there, but they don't know. I know you guys are going to get into the etiquette on the trail and so many things that somebody like me knows nothing about. How would somebody get started? How would somebody learn how to hike and how to behave? Yeah, I would recommend they find a group. And there's a lot of hiking groups around here up in the Adirondacks. We have the Adirondack Mountain Club. And they have a whole education program. They take people on trips. So, you know, you will have to buy some gear. Um, In some cases, you can rent it. But you typically have to buy some gear. But start with going to a class um, offered by your local mountain club. Um, Another great one is REI, if people know Recreational Equipment Incorporated. Um, They have a tremendous range of classes that will teach you about backpacking. And then, of course, like so much in modern life, you can go to YouTube. And you can find anything you want to know about backpacking on YouTube. That is the sum total of human knowledge. It is. (laughs) I tell you, I did it a lot on this trip, especially for like route planning, because you look up John Muir Trail on YouTube, you're going to find hundreds and hundreds of of videos. You know, you you forget that because I think of, you know, technology as being sort of the opposite of what you guys are doing and what, you know, it represents. So it's sort of interesting and a little funny that somebody would go on some huge hike and you know really be a nature lover and then come back and do a big youtube presentation it's a thing it's a thing no doubt about it and frankly it's very helpful i can Uh, imagine because you you know when you're on a hike like this you you have to have a certain preparedness because you you don't want to get out there and be unprepared either for nutrition or weather or you know the physical strain because that's when people get hurt And I think we'll talk about it a little bit later, but it's, if you get hurt in a very remote place, um, that's not just a problem for you. It's a problem for everybody around you. You want to be prepared. Let's put it that way. I don't mean to put people off or intimidate people. You probably shouldn't start with the John Muir Trail. Um, You should go to something that's a two, maybe two or three day trip. That's a great place to start if you want to do backpacking. And the other option there with two or three day trips in your general, in your region is you're not going to be that remote. So if you did get in a bind, you might just be two miles from something, a parking lot, a town, your car. You can get off beaten path, but not be so far away from it. You'd need like a helicopter rescue if you got hurt or something happened. So Kathy, that was my question. What happens if you have a medical emergency when you're on the John Muir Trail and you're very remote? What do you do? Many people now carry a a Garmin satellite device. I think there may be other brands, but that's kind of the the go-to. You you can do an SOS very quickly and they give you your lat long coordinates of where you are. It's still difficult. So remember those mules? (laughs) Um, yes <laughs> so that's a possibility is getting a mule train to 
evacuate you. The other is a helicopter, of course, if it's serious and you need medevac. Uh, we heard about a fellow who had a heart issue and they brought a chopper in. So they have to come in that way in, in a, what you'd probably see on TV, a search and rescue operation. I think at the end of those, there's a bill that gets sent to you and yeah. it's in the tens of thousands of dollars it is oh, yeah. not cheap and i don't know if insurance covers it so i'm not sure how that works <laughs> i, I don't With, think it does kathy i think you're right yeah, i mean it, you get i mean firing up a helicopter and the yeah. folks i mean you're talking i'm flight, sure north of flight 100. hours are very expensive yeah, it is yeah, it's that's... it's in the yeah and it's not like Fifteen thousand. It's tens no. of thousands. It's in <laughs> yeah. the thirty, forty, sixty thousand dollars, something, some ungodly amount. That, but if you need it to to save your life, you do. And are there clearings, meadows, and things big enough for a helicopter to land? Yes, in some places. Uh, no, in others. So, and if you're up in in the on a pass, it could be very, very difficult to get you off the side of a mountain. So no, the train is not really hospitable to that. Though, yes, there are clearings and meadows. Certainly. And some of the campsites were near places you could land a helicopter for sure. But it's still very difficult. And then you got to get hurt in the, in the right place. So did you guys carry, is it a Garmin satellite phone? Is that what you're referring to? What we carried was called a Garmin InReach Mini. It's very small. It weighs about four ounces. Mm-hmm. And it looks like an old cell phone kind of shrunk in half. It's got a little stubby antenna. It's an amazing device. Uh, you can also communicate text messages. So we were able to keep our friends and family informed that we were doing okay. You can't really converse back and forth, but you can say, hey, I'm okay. Here's where I am. We filed like a trip plan with a lot of people we knew. So they knew what our plan was. So people who really cared could get our little message, look at the plan and go, yeah, okay, they're doing all right. And part of that, the message that goes out, it tacks on the our lat-long coordinates so that people can see the coordinates where we are. And, and with a little map, if you have a smartphone, if they received it, and then you could look up where we, exactly where we are. So it is a good tracking device, too. Yes, I was getting Great. the text messages, and it was very reassuring. A couple of things I wanted to talk about. But first, I have to share with everybody that I generally do not refer to this as a backpacking adventure. My name for this adventure and the one last year that we started backpacking with was Mike's Fat Camp. <laughs> and both of them. 24 pounds. Yeah. And last year was the same thing on 12 day one um, and not at altitude. And I'm just wondering if Chef Mike has got something else up his sleeve sometime because come out of these pretty lean even and yeah, he's doing the food planning i'm already planning you know here it is coming up november i'm not ready to divulge yet where we're going next kathy but uh, <laughs> trust me it will be equally long and there will be just as little food okay great so I have to share with you a couple things. That, and these are questions I get um, from, since we've gotten back. And they're really fun to field. And those about hygiene and stuff in the woods, like calf. So what do you do for showers and bathrooms? And that's alone uh, pretty funny because, all right, the, the quick answer is there are no showers and there are no bathrooms. You have to dig a hole. Uh, they call them cat holes. And you dig a, dig a hole for your toilet and oh by the way you have to pack out your toilet paper there is a leave no trace rule and it's it's a tough rule and you have to take care of the environment so no toilet paper gets left or baby wipes gets left out in the wilderness yeah you bring your dirty toilet paper 
in you, a bag. So you have to bring it in a little Ziploc baggie. Oh, jeez. So funny. Oh, God. Or you can use, <laughs> or you can use what we like, and that's a backcountry bidet, which is very exciting. It sounds pretty luxurious, doesn't it? It does. Not really. <laughs> and, and, and explain that to our listeners, Kathy. Okay, we got to be careful here. Everybody. All right. <laughs> is this a G-rated podcast? Use your G-rated terms. Oh. Looks like a really fancy squirt bottle is what it looks like, but it is uh, allows you to take care of your needs and clean yourself up without um, using baby wipes or toilet paper. Now we had a little bit of toilet paper, obviously, as an emergency, but even whatever you use, you do have to pack out. So you just have to keep that in mind. And so it's not bad. You can use it, and most a lot of people do, but pack it out. I have a friend who she duct tapes her Ziploc bag so she can't see it. So it's a psychological game, too. Yeah. Right, yeah. (laughs) So here's, like, a stupid question, but so are there, there are no, like, garbage cans along the way, or every couple of days you see a garbage can and you can get rid of your waste no uh, you have to carry it except for those outposts i mentioned that okay. where we picked up our food the um, so you can get rid of your waste you, at those outposts yes so on the trash kelly that's a great question one of the things that happens in the back country is that people really help each other so you know for example if if someone is walking out to resupply what they'll often do is they'll check with people around them people they know and say hey, you want me to carry out any trash? And so that happened to us at least once. And you bag up your trash in a fresh Ziploc and you give it to them. And so that that really helps. Everybody helps each other out. It's a pretty remarkable dynamic that develops on the trail. And I know we're going to talk more about that today. A couple more comments. There is a lot of water on the trail. And what we do, we, we take a dip or soak or swim every day. We always camped by water or lakes or a roaring brook. Or something of that nature so that in fact is your shower and you can't really we did have a an environmentally safe soap but you still don't use that in the water stream the streams and the rivers they're just too fragile so you don't lather up and you know get your hair all lathered and then dive into the lake it's just not good so mostly it's just a dip it's in the clean water and get rinsed off, rinse off your clothes, get the sweat out of them and let them dry out in the sun. And that's it for 19 days. And so no showers, no shampoo, and it works. We actually stayed in a pretty small tent and we did not kill each other with our smell, which was nice because <laughs> that was a little bit of a concern going in. And then just for the logistics of it, you wear the same clothes every day when you walk. And then you have a set of clothes that you wear in the campsite and then a couple extra layers for cold. And that's really it. You just keep rotating them. You rinse them out. You let them dry out in the sun. And it's amazing that you, one, things don't really stink that badly, but they do get very, very dirty. And for the record, the pants and shirt I wore Um, which were super comfortable and did great for me for 19 days, were not even able to be washed. They were so filthy. They went into the trash can when I got back off the trail. Wow, I can't believe you wear the same clothes every day. It sounded so great at the start, but now... (laughs) Oh, come on, Kelly. Come on. I don't know. It's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) You know, I think what Kath just said is really good, and I just want to highlight something that is very important to me on the trail, and that's the simplicity of life. You know, our lives in the modern world are pretty complicated. You know, we just got all this stuff going on. And when you're out on the trail doing something really hard, burning all those calories, walking all those miles, 
life is remarkably simple and that is pretty calming for the mind and and the body you eat you exercise you sleep you stay clean you stay warm and then you do it over again the next day that's a pretty neat way to rewire your brain when you're out there so and there's no siren call of electronics computer tablet that's right that's right etc you've heard the term unplugged Yes. This kind of takes it to a new level. I'm sure. And that's one of the most beautiful things about it all, just to be completely unplugged. And if you really need to bring a few extra shirts, a lot of people did. I didn't. It's all about the carrying the weight. And <laughs> I refuse to carry extra weight for extra shirts. But the, some, a little, some people a little did. smell, a little dirt <laughs> in exchange for a lighter pack. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I, and I'm guessing these shirts are that, uh, you know, Rectech, wicking, quick yeah, drying wicking, stuff. Wicking, SPF 50. You know, just it, it was, the sun was pretty intense out there. So I, I wanted to be covered anyway. Long sleeves, long pants. What else do you want to tell us about the background and details before we get into our questions? Kind of wrapping up, it was a remarkable trip for both of us on many levels. Physically, we just were glad we made it through. Our middle-aged bodies held up well and got stronger. Our confidence was high. Now we're actually looking for something next summer, uh, maybe even longer. Our ability to focus. Uh, we mentioned unplugging from the noises of the modern world. I mean, when you do that for three weeks, it really calms the mind. You can't go without saying uh, what it does for us as uh, in our marriage and any relationship. It really it takes teamwork out there. You spend a lot of time together, and you sleep in a very small tent. It could go south, like ooh, lots of issues, but generally. It was great, and it made us better as a team and, I think, stronger in, in what we do together and how we are together. So that's internal and personal. But one other thing I really want to mention is the thing on this trip is the wonderful people we met on the trail and how our confidence in people and human nature, it was really renewed. With that, I just, I'd like Mike to, to move on and maybe talk about trail magic. Yeah, thanks, Kath. So, you know, we've hit a theme here a couple different times, and that is that people in the backcountry, you know, they, they act a little differently. There's more of this shared sense of we're all in this together. So when somebody gets hurt, you know, everybody pulls together. Kelly, you asked that question earlier. Before you call a helicopter, you're going to have a bunch of people trying to help you with whatever they can do. You'd be amazed at the equipment and the expertise that that suddenly appears when someone needs help. But all of that, we tend to bin into this marvelous term which backpackers use, and it's something that backpackers really cherish, and that is trail magic. There's this belief that if you go out prepared and you are ready for this, that the trail will provide and things will work out. And it has been our experience that that is always the case. Sometimes trail magic happens to you and sometimes you have an opportunity to practice trail magic. It's a very special thing. Sometimes it inspires, sometimes it comforts, sometimes it provides something you need. When you come home and you get back to wherever you live and you look at yourself in the mirror after you've taken a shower and gotten cleaned up, you're probably looking at a slightly better version of yourself after a long trip through the wilderness. Kath and I came across trail magic a couple times, moments where you just kind of you just kind of shake your head. I'll turn it over to her here. 
Yeah, so one thing I wanted to share is we met an 80-year-old man who was walking the JMT for the second time. He'd last done it in 1996, and he'd already walked maybe about 180 miles, so he was at his last 30 miles or so to go. One leg was completely braced up because he was returning home when he finished this to have a knee replacement in the next month. Wow. Somehow our aches and pains and troubles... And little nitnoid things that we Jeez. had and different walking uh, just you know, didn't seem so big. Perspective check there. You know, Kelly has knee problems. I've had a knee replacement. When I was a few weeks away from a knee replacement, I couldn't walk three blocks. I don't know how he did that. It, it was remarkable. And he just, you could see he was an old salt of the trail. It was just impressive. And he moved right along with his fairly light pack, but a uh, nice knee brace on. Not enough ibuprofen in California to get me through that <laughs> yeah yeah i mean everybody's different it, this this guy was just his optimism was just infectious so he was late in his trip he was going the opposite direction so we were early in our trip and for me meeting that guy really reset my own personal expectations on the trail like it's not going to get any worse than what that guy's doing so it was a real good calibration of my expectations and you know this guy didn't know he did that for us but that's trail magic that's that's when it happens so here's another kind of magic we came across and as we walked the trail like in the second or third week we got to know these two young couples boyfriend girlfriend the people you meet on the trail are typically 20 somethings or 50 or 60 somethings because when people are in their 30s and 40s life's too busy to go and you know unplug for three weeks and walk the john muir trail so these two young couples are going along and they were just delightful and as it turns out both of the guys were planning to propose to their girlfriend and they had these events planned back in the world fancy dinner destination sort of thing and yet out on the trail they were so kind of swept away by what it did for them in their relationship and the beauty of the place that each of them got down on a knee and proposed different spots but it was just this joyous moment for all of us as we walked along when we would meet up at the end of the day and you know the clearly something was different and uh, there were a lot of hugs and a lot of tears so it's pretty special that's a nice story and they'll have that story to tell for the rest of their marriage where they got engaged how cool is that exactly and i I just want to say to all those young couples out there who may be listening if you go on a three-week backpacking trip with your intended it's either going to work really well or maybe, you know, it might be just a good reality check as to whether or not, and I'm, I'm serious here, the substance of that relationship. I don't want to be a downer, but it was remarkable to watch these couples grow in their relationship as a function of this backpacking trip. So did you guys, like, walk with them? Because I wonder how this works for more than just a few hours. Was it several days? or We didn't really walk with them, but we ended up at the same campsite, so we're kind of on the same rhythm. Because the campsites, the ones with water and pretty decent where you could find some good tent sites, there would be a a few people in the area, not right next to you, but close by within 20, 30 yards. So we had end up in about the same place for a few different nights. And and then we'd see each other in the mornings as we were getting packing up. And a lot of community spirit in the campsite area. People would be rinsing out their clothes at the stream together. It sounds like really the ethics of it is really just helping, supporting, encouraging each other along the way. Whether you're a stranger or not, it doesn't matter, right? 
Yeah, that's right. And that's what we love so much about this. You know, those two couples constantly were sharing information like, how far are you going today? Where are you going to camp? That's how you verify or proof your own plan based on input from others. It's a very interesting. It's kind of like, you know, nowadays we have electronic means that we rely on so often. You know, you punch up Google Maps and just listen to the prompts. Obviously, those don't exist in the in the backcountry. The other thing we would, uh, especially at like dinners, We'd grab our one-pot meal. We didn't have fires out there, of course. It was California. But we would sit around a circle and, you know, four of us, six of us, eight of us, sometimes we'd all eat at the same time in the evening after we set up camp and cleaned up. And and that was kind of neat, a little community happening there. And it didn't happen every night. But again, that that was the magic of the trail. And with these couples, these uh, two or three other couples we met, we ended up kind of eating together maybe three, four different nights um, in that last 10 days of the walk. Two of them we finished with on the top of Whitney, two other, two other couples, one of the ones who got engaged. This being your second long hike, and you've told me you've met so many interesting people, do you keep in touch with these people? Do you send Christmas cards and things like that? Not Christmas cards, but yes, we... Uh, texting? We have kept in touch with uh, texting, instant message, uh, sending photos. We have different photos. We all had photos of one of them. We got to see them get engaged. We took pictures of it and we've all sent them and shared pictures of that and follow up. We actually are going to Dallas, Texas in a month and or in a couple weeks. And one of them lives there. One of these couples that just got engaged. So we're hoping to link up for a for lunch. We'll see if uh, we can make it work. We're coordinating. And one of the couples was from New Zealand and they, they're planning to come back and we're already thinking of linking up for a, a backpacking trip together. They were like very like-minded, um, similar aged couple as us. And we saw them quite a bit that second half of the trip and really got along well, but they live in New Zealand. But so we are staying in touch and we'll see. We have you can go to New Zealand for hiking. <laughs> yeah. I bet they have good hikes there. They came all the way from New Zealand. To wow. Hike. Yeah, they were just, you know, again, you you meet these remarkable people and they were very special. So shout out to Jim and Lisa. And we hope to walk with them again because that's what kind of makes this so special. Yeah, that's Uh, very heartwarming. Do you have some more episodes of Trail Magic you can share with us? I've got one. You know, folks who've been listening to this podcast for a while know that I have several family members who are special needs. And one of the things which really moved me on the trail was we were walking along one day and you pass people who are resting by the side of the trail or filtering water or, you know, having lunch or whatever. And for the very first time in the backcountry, I saw a special needs kid and he was a He was probably a late teen, 20-somethings kid. He had Down syndrome, and he was there with his mom. And, you know, we were... Sometimes on the trail, you're pretty close to civilization, like where you pick up food. But this was not that kind of place. And there they were. He was doing his part. He was... I think he was filtering water. But it really warmed my heart to see a family like that out on the trail. Again, first and only time I've seen somebody who obviously was special needs out backpacking. Kelly, earlier you talked about how would somebody get into it. And, you know, there's lots of ways to get into it. But what I'd say is that this is something that you know, at some level, just about everybody can do. I would certainly encourage folks to think about it. I have something I'd love to share. This is a shout out to my my best buddy. We were in the first few days, maybe day three or so, and our first pass we hiked over. We have a gentleman on the other side of the pass and just sitting there and we're talking to him and, and his partner had gone back up 
the pass to look for his sunglasses, which he had left, he thinks, at the top of the pass. And we're talking to him, and he's squinting in the sun, and he was probably in in his 60s, and was just kind of bummed out. But he was confident that maybe they'd be found. We met up with them about an hour later. His partner had come off the pass again, did not find the sunglasses, and they... We were then taking a water break and we were talking to them and Mike had brought an extra pair of sunglasses purely by accident. They had had them on his head when we started out and forgot to put them back in the car when we originally left days before. And he had commented at one point that, oh, geez, I have two pair. And it just hit him and he just goes, wait a second, I got an extra pair of sunglasses. And he pulls them out of his pack and he gives them to this man and they were nice sunglasses. And this guy was amazed beyond amazement. And I tell you, Mike was a trail angel that day because it's really not good to not have sunglasses in the high Sierras in that powerful sun. It was a really neat moment. Really sweet. Yay, Mike. Nothing surprising about that, though. Yeah, no. Absolutely. Yeah, not that makes a big deal out of it. That, <laughs> yeah, that's... What it did was it allowed me to reduce my pack weight. <laughs> it's all it about a... pack weight. It was a win-win situation. You also mentioned you were running short on food and something happened. Yeah, we did fine, but there's always somebody out there who who just didn't quite get it right. I'll tell you, last summer we made that mistake too. We miscounted days and we ran out of food. I mentioned Mike Fat Camp, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that just another That's example. not how Mike fat, like Mike's fat camp works. So you works, think he okay. did it on purpose, Kathy? <laughs> well, 14 miles on an empty stomach? <laughs> uh, now, wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. But what happens when, you know, anybody has a problem, whatever it is, is people kick in and they, they chip in. Everybody's got something they can share. And we saw it this trip. There were some instances where, for whatever reason, somebody didn't have enough food. And I just we just saw such incredible acts of generosity. It warms your heart and it restores your faith in humanity. So one of the big reasons we backpack. I think folks are getting that, getting that theme here. It restores your faith in humanity. That's a big thing. Yeah, it is. It's huge. And and this is in the real general trail magic category. And, and the, you mentioned humanity, Marna. In daily life, we don't stop to talk to people we don't know on the street, right? Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, Kathy. You, you just don't just strike up conversations when you're waiting in line, maybe at a, a restaurant or waiting to be seated. You just don't strike up a conversation with a stranger. And on the trail, you often do. People want to know what's ahead. They want to get a little intelligence about the campsites, water, the climbs, if there's anything we should know. You meet interesting people. It's where you're from. Why are you out here? First time in the High Sierras, you know, all kinds. But you have these conversations that could be a minute. They could be 10 minutes. And then at the campsites, they could even be longer. And these are complete strangers. And it's so wonderful. And it does restore your faith in humanity. And there's just this genuine human interest on the trail, which is magic to me. In regular life, if somebody started talking to me, like standing in a line or somewhere, I'd be like, uh-oh, this is a weirdo. <laughs> Get away. Especially you know, in the warning, Northeast. Warning, warning, warning. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. which I, that sounds terrible, but it sounds like there are no strangers out on the trail. And everybody's almost the, you know, the common practice, the etiquette is to help each other. I, I love your line, Kelly. There are no strangers on the trail. Yeah. Can I steal that? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. That's a great way to put it. And it's so true. And if somebody needs help, that whole idea just goes into overdrive. There are no strangers on the trail. Definitely something to bring back to 
daily life. Yeah, yeah. And for all of us to take to heart. So I think Kelly and I have a few questions for you. Are you up for that? We're ready. Okay. I was wondering about being at such high altitude because that had to be hard to breathe. And also, did you have any problem with altitude sickness? So I'll take that one. Yes, it was hard. We took two days to acclimatize. So we went out actually three days. We went out three days before our trip and we got to, you know, about 9,500 feet. And we then stayed there just in a beautiful mountain town, Mammoth Lakes, California, and let our bodies adjust to the elevation without walking. So that's the key. You don't want to go and start your trip right away at elevation, especially, you know, we live almost at sea level. That's a real shock to the body. It's not a good thing to do. So the elevation was really hard. I actually had a, a very bad day on day three when I got you know, a mild case of what's called altitude mountain sickness. I lost my appetite. I had a splitting headache. I took uh, Tylenol and I went to sleep. I skipped dinner and the next morning I felt better. And that's not unusual. So it does take the body a while to adjust. And the first week was hard. Second week was easier. By the time we got into the third week and we'd been, you know, going over 12,000 foot passes, we were really strong. That's interesting. Kelly, do you have any questions? Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering about park rangers. Uh, Do you ever see any park rangers or any kind of local law enforcement or government presence when you're out on a on a trail like this? The short answer is yes, but the the follow-up is not very often. So there are clearly park ranger huts or lodges, cabins are out there, or people who are out there for the season, for sure, and they exist. And that would be a place you could, if you had a problem, you could go to. You might have to wait. They just don't man it like a full-time 24-hour. They are out on the trail as well. And they're checking out different things in the area. There may just be one person. There may be two of them that are in a region. It just depends on the the needs of the the park system and obviously the potential concerns. We happened to to see a couple on the trail and bumped into them a few times in in one morning and stopped to talk and and get some updates from them on fires and any fire danger. But they are out there, but you just don't see them very often. And this is a big trail, pretty popular. It's permitted, so it's, it's limited in number of people, but it is a very popular area. Um, and then with the fires, they but and they give updates on, on bear sightings and things like that. But they'll post stuff by ranger cabins and on uh, trail markers and signs. The rangers will post updates on fires or bears or things like that that would be helpful to hikers. But you don't actually see them very often. Speaking of bears, that's something I hadn't considered. And you can't lock your food in the car like they tell you to do when you camp. So are bears a risk there? Yes, there are a lot of bears in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So all of our food is carried in a bear-resistant canister, which is made out of plastic and has a screw-top lid. You have to have those. We only had one bear sighting. We were in a fairly big campground by a river in the bottom of a valley. And we actually were, you know, washing up at the end of the day, washing our clothes. And we saw this young bear just kind of moseying down the far bank. He was, they tend to hang around campsites and they're looking for people who don't put their food away. Because that's a whole lot easier to eat human food than to uh, forage for wild food. That's the problem when the bears become accustomed to eating human food and then you have a bear problem. So... The rangers are really, really big on that. Keep your food properly put away. Do you guys like 
hang your food like in a tree or I don't know what I've read in books. That, or... that tends to be, yeah, that, that was a very good technique. It still can be a good technique, but the bears are remarkably, they're really good tree climbers and they're remarkably inventive. You have to be really good at hanging your stuff to actually prevent the bear from getting it. I mean, literally they will go over and they will cut the line that is tied to a tree to suspend your food. So that's why we use bear canisters now. What makes a bear canister bear resistant? A lot of testing, Marna. Are the bears figuring this out? Will they figure it out? Yes, they have. <laughs> there's a great, uh, here in the Adirondacks, there's a great, ex- the great example of that. We carry a certain bear canister, and at the lodge, one of the lodges we go to in the Adirondacks, there's one of those canisters which has the bottom corner chewed off. This very industrious, determined bear managed to chew this thing open. Uh, but that's wow. the rare exception. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're hard for humans to open, so... Is it a screw top, or what? It, it's a what screw is it? top, yeah, with okay. a little catch device, which, they're made out of plastic. So here's the, here's the trick. When it's really cold in the morning getting your bear canister open when the plastic is stiff that's really hard so can you leave your food just with you in your tent and not even worry about it or do you need to leave it away from you in case there is a bear issue or you don't want any food even toothpaste anything with an odor sunscreen that goes in the bear canister at night and the bear canister goes 40 50 feet away from your tent site so if the bear decides to try and play soccer with the bear canister it's away from you and away away from the tent and you don't have to worry like i guess it's in a backpack or something and you don't have to worry about somebody like stealing it the bear running off with it and then you don't have any food or sunblock or no it could i mean if the bear took it, it could be gone yeah, that would be bad. But it would be better than the bear getting in your tent, right? Yes, so, yeah. And then for other people, no, you don't worry about things getting stolen. That's the etiquette and the, the, the magic of the trail. And you know if it got stolen, you'd have people, if it gets stolen, if you had a bear take it for some reason and you couldn't, or it got compromised and the bear got their food, you, you know, you'd probably have people helping you out with food to get you to your next oasis of some kind, get off the trail. I'm ready to go hiking for a day. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I'm a day hiker. I have to work myself up to this longer thing. Kelly, we can arrange that. Yeah, Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. I'm not sure about the, you know, I think maybe you work your way up to and get used to the, the sanitation stuff, the lack of shower. I don't know. It sounds really intimidating to a lot of people, but I tell you, especially when you're backpacking in the summer and you can swim in a lake or wash, you know, swim in a stream. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it sounds wonderful in so many ways. I mean, that water's got to be cold, though. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's pretty chilly. (laughs) But I I guess refreshing, right? (laughs) Yeah, super invigorating. Yeah, it is amazing. You, You think it at some point you just feel like so sweaty and clammy and yucky, and you do at the end of the day, but you get cleaned up in the water and... He's like, whoa, new person, new day. And, you know, I know with no use, not using soap and no issues with skin issues or itching or just yucky feeling. You know, again, just cleaning up in the in really nice water. It's good. All right. I have two final questions. What were the low points and the high points of your hike? And let's start with the low points first and then finish with the high points. Okay, I'll talk low points. You know, one thing about hiking, especially in a group, is that at any given time, somebody may be having a good day, somebody else may be having a not-so-good day. 
And then during the day, that same same thing applies. And so my challenge was always, it happened like a bunch of times, was, you know, late in the day, it would be super hot, super dry. And since we climbed over so many high passes, we would try to get close to a pass or we would try to get partway up a pass before we camped. And so at the end of the day, you're climbing and for me, that was the hardest part. And Kathy knew it was coming. I just, I, I ran out of steam on some of those days. And that's when being part of a team makes a huge difference. Yeah, it was tough trying to just deal with him. And mentally, like, morale was low. And, you know, I didn't want to be that, that super peppy coach. You know, like, oh, we can do this. Because that didn't go over well. So just, you know, we got quiet. We got quiet a lot in late afternoons. So we just kept keep your head down and keep walking. But my low points were the complete opposite. My low points were the few mornings we had frost on our tent when we woke up. It was in the low 30s. It was cold. Mm -hmm. And I might have mentioned earlier in the podcast that I pack pretty light. I don't want to carry extra gear because I'm a person of a certain age and I got to go a long way. I didn't pack a couple things I probably should have. And I froze my ass off a couple mornings getting up trying to take the tent apart and pack up and my hands literally were frozen they were numb and I'm like tucking them up in my shirt to get them warm because I did not pack gloves which was a silly thing to do and oh uh, Kathy that uh, seems like a basic thing (laughs) oh it does seem like a basic thing right and uh they well it was August (laughs) I mean it was August I I mean that is kind of mind-blowing that's right and the intel I got from somebody who was on the trail in June and that was colder. Well, it should have been colder. The last second, I took my, and I actually swapped out my, took my hat out of the pack. And so I just had a buff. So I can make a buff into a hat, but it's pretty thin. So I didn't have my wool hat. I didn't have gloves. I felt like, just like, whoa, rookie mistake, Kath. And I was so cold in the morning. Once you go walking, no big deal. But trying to get the camp taken apart. So here I am starting in the morning being angry and fussing and being a I was a pill. Mike was just getting me hot tea. Here, drink this and trying to get... Thaw out those fingers. Get me going. But I I generally was... uh, He was getting breakfast going. I usually was taking down the tent and I was just rah, rah, rah. So good of you to have your low points at different times of the day. You weren't both in a bad space at the same time. Yeah. No, then that's that's pretty special. It worked for us. So how about the high points? I'm excited to hear those. One, it sounds a little obvious, but the high points were the high passes. And even though they were tough climbs, the passes were remarkable. Every single one of them. You just get up to this high point of 10, 11, 12. Before we climb Mount Whitney was uh, like 13,500 feet and remarkable. It's kind of this feeling of accomplishment. It's like going over an edge almost. They're not very big at the top and you can see both sides. So you get to then see your whole descent of where you're going and then you look back at where you've been and the, the breadth of the scenery. That was definitely always a high point. And we, had, we went over 9 or 10 passes over the 19 days yeah that's right it sounds pretty spectacular and you have pictures of that obviously Mm -hmm. we can put some on our instagram at ethics etiquette mike your high point for me it was having our daughter kate and our son-in-law kyle join us we talked earlier about infantrymen well oh by the way kyle's an infantryman so here he takes precious leave and decides to come out with us and walk for four days and so having those two young folks with us just the energy they brought was 
tremendous. It was very special for us to have them. I tell you, that day five, when we walked back on the trail, just the two of us, and we'd said goodbye to Kate and Kyle, that was a tough day. It was a big letdown. Not to mention that our packs were super heavy because we just filled them with food again. But that like taking them off to college, <laughs> the way you feel. Yeah, you. <laughs> it really was. And but having them out there and the crazy stuff they talk about, and they're both very funny. It was a lot of fun. So that was my high point. Well, thank you both so much for telling us all about this. I think it's been so interesting. And I think we've got another episode about this coming up on Leave No Trace Ethos of the Backcountry. You going to come back and talk about that? Yeah, that's kind of the, the system that's now in place that helps people respect these remarkable, wild, fragile places. And it really works, by the way. I look forward to hearing about it. Kathy, it's been so nice having you with us. Will you come back? I would love to come back. (laughs) This has been fun. Thanks so much for having me on today. Hurrah! As we go through the etiquette of the trail and leave no trace, you two can walk us through that just like you did regarding this trip, which just sounds amazing. Phenomenal. Yeah, Yeah, we'd love to. That would be great. And there's some really neat neat aspects of the leave no trace uh, that uh, just, I think it's important to to talk about and and get that out because it can apply in a lot of other areas of life as well. Sounds like something that not just in the backcountry, but all of us could take to heart wherever we live. Absolutely. Definitely. And I just want to thank you, uh, Kelly and Marna, for being interested in this, you know, and asking good questions. A lot of people just sort of go, oh, yeah, that's really cool. Must have been hard. That's all they want to hear. So thanks for taking the time. I have so much admiration for you guys. I just think it's uh, it's incredible. I, I'm very interested in it. I It just sounds like so much fun. And as Kathy talked about, when you finish something like that, the feeling of accomplishment and you know the confidence that you must gain and such a positive thing for your health and your relationship. And it's just yeah. wonderful to see the world. So I'm jealous, except for the, the bathing and the going to the bathroom part, yeah. which I'm struggling with. <laughs> Glamping. I'm into glamping. Yeah, me too. I was waiting yeah. for, like, you go off the trail and stay at a hotel, get a nice hot shower, sleep in a warm bed, and then go back out. Well, they did uh, that one we, night, we didn't did you? We did that one night, and we did last year when we did our talk. We had one night as well, and we just, we call it hotel night. Well, that was, yeah, that was our hotel. We don't call them rest days. We got hotel nights, and like, yeah, that was our hotel night, and then you get back on the trail the next day. We, so we did. We had one night. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Kathy, Mike, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining me today. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Marna, for having this discussion with us today. One last note I'd just like to say on backpacking. Slow down, look around, unplug, and do it with someone you really like. Oh, I love that. That's the advice we can all take to cart. And we don't have to go to the Sierra Nevadas to do that. Slow down, be with somebody you love. Thank you so much. Hey, let's keep this conversation going. Send an email to inbox at ethicsandetiquette.com or leave a voicemail at our website, ethicsandetiquette.com. Check out our Instagram at ethicsetiquette and our Facebook page, Ethics and Etiquette. If you want to support what we're doing, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a gushing over-the-top review while you're there. And keep recommending Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman, Mike Derrick, and Kathy Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for being with us this week, and join us again. New episodes are posted on the first and third Wednesday of every month. See you then.